The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last few months, actually, of um, this particular group, we've been exploring the... um, the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, there was one teaching that described how all of the teachings that the Buddha offered, everything, all of the teachings could fit into this framework. And so I'm kind of taking my time going through these teachings and uh, looking at, okay, this, this aspect, what other teachings relate to this? And kind of pulling them in together. So um, at this point, we're in the process of looking at the Eightfold Path, and the topic for today is uh, shifting from the, uh, the Eightfold Path is, um, we could say it's a set of tools or practices that support us to be able to wake up to and transform the suffering in our lives. Um, Understanding that suffering is a um, aspect of how our minds relate to experience. So suffering in this context isn't about just having unpleasant experience, but is um, about how we are with that. So resistance, fighting, greed, aversion around what's happening, a confusion, um, anger, frustration, all of those kinds of responses or reactions to experience, they are experienced internally as painful, as suffering. And that is actually the place where the Buddha said we have some measure of uh, capacity to transform our minds. That our minds have been conditioned to respond in certain ways, conditioned to react in certain ways, and that conditioning can be shaped in a new direction, shaped towards uh, letting go of those habitual responses of greed and aversion and delusion, and more in the direction of love and compassion and wisdom, kindness. And so the, the Eightfold Path is a set of tools that help us to move in that direction, move towards love, kindness, wisdom, generosity, uh, tranquility of mind, equanimity, balance of mind. By meeting, uh, they're tools that will support us to to meet and to recognize when we are engaged in uh, those qualities of mind that lead us in the direction of suffering. And so this this uh, kind of dichotomy, or I don't know what the right word is, but some kind of a um, separation or recognition that there are certain things that go on in our minds. Greed, aversion, delusion being the kind of the roots that the Buddha pointed to as um, these things will really keep us stuck. They'll, they'll catch us. They will keep us caught in more of that. And he articulated this with the teaching, whatever we frequently ponder becomes the inclination of our mind. This is essentially an expression of that conditioning nature of our minds. If we frequently engage in and think about and orient towards thoughts of aversion, we cultivate more thoughts of aversion or greed or confusion. And so the, 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 side, the other side is that, that it is possible to begin to shape alternative 
things in our mind. We can shape more love, more wisdom, more compassion, generosity, kindness. And that will begin to uh, increase that those qualities and thereby begin to help us to let go of the things that keep us caught in suffering. And so this kind of division, the, the term here is um, what is skillful. That's a translation of the Pali term kusala, which is what helps us move in the direction of letting go of suffering. And akusala is uh, unskillful, unhelpful. We could say things are, certain things are helpful for helping us move in the direction of letting go of struggle, of suffering, distress. And other things are um, not helpful, that they actually create more of that. And so this d- division in, in helpful and unhelpful, this kind of, and it's very practical, this kind of split, this kind of... Uh, looking at, okay, these things, when we engage in greed, aversion, delusion, and all of the flavors of that, there's so many, I mean, the the Buddha talked about those three as being the roots of all of our reactivity and all of our um, unskillfulness. Um, You know, anger, hatred, confusion, um, even things like boredom, you know, that's more in the delusion camp where we're kind of disconnected from experience. These things uh, are not supportive for moving us in the direction of more well-being, more happiness, more connectedness, more care, uh, a sense of ease and peace in our lives. And so this, this kind of very practical looking, this is the, the, the Buddha pointed to just like, this is helpful. What's helpful, what's not helpful? Greed, aversion, delusion, not helpful. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, and he actually framed it in this way, helpful. So the absence of greed is actually helpful. The absence of aversion is helpful. And the absence of confusion is helpful. And yet we we tend to think of things in a more, um, you know, the absence of something, how can that be helpful? Uh, And it is actually, but, you know, we can also look at Uh, the absence of greed, it essentially creates the conditions or when we're not trying to hold on, we're not trying to constrict, that there's the natural movement of generosity, of sharing. When we're not greedy, there can be more of this very natural movement to connectedness and sharing. When we're not averse, when we're not tight and tense around aversion, there can be a natural sense of connectedness and care and love. And when we're not confused, there can be a natural wisdom that's present. And so in some ways we can look at the absence of greed as being a kind of a generosity, the absence of aversion aversion being a kind of a love, and the absence of confusion, the absence of ignorance as being a kind of wisdom. And so this kind of division or kind of separation, the Buddha really encouraged us to look into our experience. What is helpful and what is not helpful? This connects to the ethics component of the Eightfold Path. This connects to the ethics aspect of the practice. The ethics in Buddhism, and so the Eightfold Path being these, these tools or practices for supporting 
cultivating the skillful and letting go of the unskillful. Uh, the first two are wise view and wise intention. Um, wise view, we could just say, is a, a kind of a recognition of this division. You know, wise view is recognizing, yes, when I'm acting out of these unskillful things, it's not helpful. So it's just a simple kind of, it can just be very simple recognition of what is, what is helpful. This is a view that is actually not so obvious until we are kind of, it's pointed out to us. And then out of that perspective, an intention or a kind of a connection with what's the direction, given that this is helpful, what's the direction? How do I want to engage? And this is the intention aspect, wise intention. So wise, wise view, wise intention, the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path. And then the next three are connected with ethics. And so the, the ethics is really grounded in this understanding of this what's helpful and what's not helpful and so the you know often ethics we have a a connection or a relationship to you know right wrong good bad um thou shalt not kind of uh you know uh rigidity almost and the perspective in Buddhism is more about, well, there's certain things that when we engage in them and do them, they tend to be motivated out of these unhelpful things. And so not so useful to go there. And so three categories, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Um, wise speech uh, comprises you know, the way we engage. All of these aspects of ethics are really bringing into our path um, relationship. It brings into the field of our practice and our concern how we are in relationship with our fellow human beings. And so, you know, in, in looking at this kind of separation or this what's helpful and what's not helpful, we might just think about that internally. And I, in speaking about it before, I was speaking about it internally. It's like when I act out of anger, it cultivates more anger in here. And that creates non-well-being in here. And so we can look at this skillful, unskillful in terms of what's skillful and unskillful in my own heart and mind. But also the Buddha encouraged us to look at how do those behaviors, those actions, those intentions play out in the world. And so the feedback that we get around the motivations that we act from, internally we can get the feedback around, well, the you know, the constriction around anger, there's a feeling of that that is painful. And then in terms of engagement in the world, if we engage in a way that creates harm, we get feedback through seeing other people suffering. And so we, we, um, we get feedback in relationship as well. But these same um, uh, qualities of mind greed, aversion, delusion, it can be understood to underlie the actions that would be wrong speech and wrong action and wrong livelihood. And so why speech is, and just briefly on these right now, I'll take, you know, the next weeks I'll go into these more <coughs> in depth, each of these aspects of the Eightfold Path. I mostly just want to cover, explore a little bit about ethics in general and you know, I, I, I actually, you know, we think of ethics as being entirely about uh, relationship and culture at times, but 
I think this ethics that the Buddha pointed to, um, it's really pointing to a human ethics. It's pointing to, because in this exploration around um, what's helpful and what's not helpful in terms of suffering, these reflections around greed, aversion, delusion, when we experience anger, when we experience that tightening and craving and clinging, there is that kind of inner feedback that says this is not well-being. So it's a kind of human feedback around these aspects. The Buddha looked into his own heart and mind and said, when the mind engages in these things, it creates affliction for myself, for others, for both. That's not helpful. And affliction here not being um, you know, culturally defined, but defined in terms of human experience. And so the ethics that um, the Buddha points to is not about laws and about um, particular cultural things. It's more about what creates the conditions for harmony in our human relationships. And so we can think of it as a more natural ethics. And it's natural because our human system is designed to recognize and um, know that when we have greed, aversion, delusion, it feels painful. When we do something or when we see suffering, our hearts feel it too. If we're not constricted, if we're not kind of closed down. So the, the, um, uh, the feedback systems of our human organism are designed to be empathetic and designed to resonate with the emotions, with the experiences of our fellow human beings. And so the kind of ethics that the Buddha is exploring is using that, those natural uh, qualities and capacities of our heart and mind to begin to recognize that these things are helpful in terms of human uh, connection, care, relationship, internal um, releasing of um, tension and constriction, finding that movement towards well-being. And these things are not so helpful. And so wise speech is um, um, four aspects of Refraining from false speech, refraining from harsh speech, divisive speech, and then idle chatter. Uh, And again, I'll go into these more um, next time. Um, But um, just briefly, the first three are really areas that create direct suffering. False speech, uh, harsh speech, idle chatter. They are, um, they're not, they're not connected, the false speech is not connected with truth. And in so many ways, what we are exploring here is what is true, what is truth, not only verbally, but experientially. And so truth is, um, there's a kind of a a strong sense of truth as being very uh, powerful. And so truth, um, and then divisive and harsh speech are things that create division, separation, in our relationships. Um, Harsh speech directly um, is is speech that's intended to create, um, to make somebody else feel bad. 
um, uh, divisive speech is speech that's intended to create separation and division. And so those three areas are really, um, you know, directly speaking to suffering. And the, the, the Buddha kind of points to, if we're engaged in these actions, there's going to be greed, aversion, or delusion in there. Now, it may be that we speak harshly, um, not intending to hurt somebody, but more out of delusion, you know, almost the habit of, of something, you know, kind of a, a habit of how to speak in a certain situation and that, that kind of gets mistakenly put into another situation and, and, and there's a kind of a reaction and so the, the, it may not be, you know, it actively intending to um, create uh, harm in certain kinds of speech, but we can begin to see, you know, so maybe somebody has a reaction. And then we can start to look at, well, what did I not understand? So there may be some confusion or there may be some not o- unawareness of something. <clears throat> so we can use this feedback with how others respond to help us to, uh, to recognize when there is this affliction. The idle chatter is kind of a different category in a way um, because often it's not directly out of greed or aversion. It could be. I mean, idle chatter can just be, uh, you know, greed about some kind of, you know, thing that you like to be engaged with that's not necessarily such a supportive thing in terms of free, I mean like, you know, some TV show or something, you know, idle chatter might be considered like, you know, just like chatting about a TV show. In fact, the Buddha encouraged his monks not to talk about, talks about kings or countries or um, you know, village talk, talk at the well, you know, so just just chatter. Um, and yet, the intention is important to, ch- to, to, to connect to. Because there are times, especially in our cultures and out the way that ha- things happen here, um, in the way things have unfolded in the way we live our lives, we don't know a lot of people that we come into contact with. And idle chatter, what may be seemingly idle chatter, you're talking about the weather or, you know, just some kind of, uh, you know, comment about the bus that you're on, riding a bus next to a, a stranger. You know, just like that might seem like idle chatter, but it's forming the purpose of creating connection. And so that that's not, I wouldn't call that idle chatter. It's got a purpose. It may have a wholesome purpose to create connection. So it's important to understand, to not just hold things as, well, this kind of talk is, is idle chatter. But to look at what's the purpose behind the talk. And so again, the, the kind of the intention, this is where really in the Eightfold Path, the, the, the links between these uh, is, is visible. The intention around which we're speaking, <clears throat> the intention that's kind of motivating our speech is really important to understand. And again... The Buddha wants us to
The Buddha wants us to encourage non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And so if we're finding that our talk, our speech is motivated out of greed, aversion, delusion, that's something to pay attention to, something to perhaps refrain from. So the intention behind our actions. And in certain areas of action, as idle speech, you know, it's like there may, there's there's not necessarily, you know, these things are idle speech, these things aren't. So we really need to begin to look at what is the motivation? What is the intention? The understanding behind the ethical section of the Eightfold Path is that there's certain activities, certain (coughs) things that we might do, ways that we might speak that are um, much more highly likely to be motivated from greed, aversion, and delusion. And so the Buddha kind of pointed these things out and said, you know, if you find yourself engaged in these things, probably useful to kind of put, put a step back and, and see, ch- stop, <laughs> is, this, is this greed, aversion, or delusion at work in our minds? Because it's much easier, you know, we can't stop what's going on in our mind often. It's, it's deeply conditioned, the habits, the patterns of our mind. And yet the launching into um, uh, action out of those habits and patterns, we can begin to uh, recognize before we act. We can begin to see that we're moving in a direction of action. And having these uh, ethical guidelines can help us. It's like, oh, you're getting ready to step into harsh speech. Wait a minute. Let's just see what's going on here. And so those are the four aspects of wise speech. The wise action is refraining from killing living beings. Breathing beings, actually, is the the language. Refraining from killing breathing beings. Refraining from taking what is not given. Refraining from creating harm through sexuality. Again, these are really focused around actions that would create harm, that would create affliction. And the Buddha encouraged us to notice not only how affliction might come to our own being, but also that we don't want to uh, create affliction in the world. If we are committed to this kind of movement towards well-being in our own hearts and minds, then um, the Buddha says it's really skillful to not put actions into the world that would create suffering in other beings. And so he kind of highlights these actions as saying, you know, take care with these. Refrain from killing. Refrain from taking what's not given. Refrain from creating harm through sexuality. Again, these are very much in the the terrain of non-harming. This very natural, um, uh, I think most cultures, most... um, um, 
religious kinds of uh, ethical systems understand these very basic forms of action as creating suffering in the world. And so the Buddha encourages us not necessarily just to say, well, stop doing that, but I, I really understand these guidelines, these ethical guidelines as being um, kind of wake-up bells or warning signs. Not to just kind of say, oh, shut down, don't do that, repress what's going on inside, because that will just create more tension internally. But there's kind of this interesting, like, uh, uh, just down the middle approach of seeing, okay, this kind of tension is being coming up in, in the mind. It's like seeing a, a whole bunch of ants in the kitchen or uh, spiders on the wall and there's tension. I don't like this, don't want these here. And there's maybe a movement to get out the raid or something, you know, get out the, the insecticide. And that movement is coming from aversion often. And so the, you know, the, the, the intention here is not simply to just shut down and not kill. It's important not to do that. But another important piece of it is to look at what's going on. What is the, what is the heart and mind kind of that piece of aversion that's going on there? And seeing can there not be an acting out of that aversion? So finding another way, perhaps, to engage in removing the ants from the kitchen. Um, so the, uh, the exploration of these aspects, these ethical guidelines, we could call them, refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, idle chatter, taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from creating harm through sexuality, <clears throat> this um, this kind of middle path that I was pointing to, this kind of place of not not um, engaging in those actions, so not doing them, but also not kind of uh, just forcing oneself to not feel or the, the delicate pieces to recognize the mind kind of wants to go there, wants to do something, maybe out of confusion, maybe out of greed, and uh, to notice that. See if you can refrain from the action and feel the feelings, feel the motivations, feel the, the impulse. Because when we do that, when we turn towards that part, we see that part of our motivation for, for instance, you know, killing the, the ants or the spiders is, well, there's aversion. We don't like them. There's fear, perhaps. There's a sense of not being in control. And so there's all kinds of unpleasant experiences going on. And we basically want to take the fastest route to getting rid of those unpleasant experiences. And the fastest route... Our mind thinks the fastest route is kill this creature. And so the, there's that kind of movement, but it's coming out of aversion. But if we open to and uh, recognize, yes, there's fear, there's aversion. I don't like that spider. I'm, I'm actually quite afraid of spiders. Um, 
um, there's a confusion, there's um, the aversion. So there's the aversion and the fear and the confusion all kind of mixed up in there. If we can know that and uh, recognize that, then we begin to see the suffering that's happening as a result of those feelings. So there's a distinction here that's important across the board in in exploring our hearts and minds. That um, you know, we think it's the spider that's the problem. We think it's the thing that's out there that's the issue. But really the suffering, this is, like we think it's the spider that's creating the suffering. But what's happening actually internally is that the mind is reacting. It's conditioned. You know, maybe parents were afraid of spiders and killed spiders. Or, you know, we learned about this is how you deal with spiders. Maybe just out of delusion. This is just the way that we learned. And so the, you know, that this conditioning has, uh, this is how we learn to respond to spiders. For myself, you know, just, there was a new kind of conditioning that happened in my life after I read Charlotte's Web. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that story, you know, Charlotte's Web, the story of the spider that saved the pig. You know, it's a children's story. And and after that, I could not, like, I, I didn't want my mom killing spiders, you know. It's like I created a new relationship. So this is conditions. This is conditioning that affected me. Affected me for the rest of my life, you know, catching spiders and putting them outside. Um, so the 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 ways in which we're conditioned affects how we are. And yet if we, if we um, you know, have these conditions that are out of greed, aversion, delusion, and we're not seeing them. So, you know, there's the, the, the thing that's out there and then there's how we've been trained to respond. And so what we're looking at with our practice is what are those responses? What are those conditionings? Not to simply try to say, turn them off or stop them because again, there's a, a strong habit or pattern or a momentum of our conditioning. We can't usually just turn a switch and say, oh, I'm not going to be afraid of spiders anymore. That, that's not usually possible. It's a little bit easier to say, I'm not going to kill spiders anymore. And I would like to be able to feel that fear. As we do that, you know, the, the way mindfulness works, and this is, it's not obvious, at least it wasn't obvious to me initially, how or why it would be helpful to feel the fear or to feel whatever reaction there is because these, this area of reaction, this area of our relationship to what's going on out there is really where our freedom lies. Where... Uh, you know, the greed, the aversion, the delusion are habitual reactions to what's going on out there. That's where our suffering is really born. And uh, it's conditioned. It's been trained into us. It is possible to have a different relationship with spiders. It's possible to have a different relationship with anything. And so the, you know, the... the, um, the, the precepts or these ethical components of the path are pointing us to things that 
if you're doing these, there is very likely greed, aversion, or delusion at work. So pay attention. See if you can refrain from the action, but don't repress or try to to deny that you're feeling whatever it is. The feeling of out of control, the feeling of confusion, the feeling of fear, the feeling of anger. Don't repress that. And with mindfulness, open to it. And again, the, the, uh, you know, the way that the transformation happens in mindfulness is that you know, it's counterintuitive. As I said, it's counterintuitive how being mindful of these things would be helpful. You know, how, why would it help to be mindful of fear? Won't that just make me more afraid? Or how would it help to be mindful of anger? Won't that just make me more angry? It doesn't take very long <clears throat> of noticing or being curious about being mindful. And again, the, the mindfulness is a particular way of attending. So the uh, being mindful of anger or being mindful of fear is not about being lost in the fear, acting out of the fear or giving in to the fear. It's kind of got a curiosity of what is this experience? What is it like to be a human being that's feeling fear, that's feeling anger? So that is what we would call right mindfulness, wise mindfulness, which is another of the aspects of the Eightfold Path we'll talk about in some weeks. Wise mindfulness is this perspective of how to pay attention, of how to be with experience. And so with the, uh, the guidelines around don't engage in these actions, it can help to create a, a little bit of a, a pause from following through on an unwholesome intention and give us the opportunity to be mindful of it. This way it's like, oh, what is it like to be a human being that doesn't want the spider in here? Okay, many human beings in the course of history have not liked spiders. This is not just about me. This is conditioning. And so to, uh, to be curious about that. So this form of being curious about experience. One thing that that does for us is it points to, in the moment, and again, this sounds counterintuitive, but the ex- what is it like to be a human being that's feeling fear? It doesn't feel good. It feels painful. It feels like I want to get out of here. And so it's counterintuitive to land with that. But what is happening in that moment is that the mind is beginning to understand that the experience of fear itself or whatever reactive experience you're noticing, that the experience of fear is is the suffering. It's not actually the thing that we're afraid of that's the suffering. It's the fear that's the suffering. And so our our habitual movement to um, immediately act on that um, often will obscure that the fear is the, uh, the reason for the suffering. Now, I have to say this because 
this can be misunderstood. There's a good place for fear in our lives. You know, fear helps us to avoid danger. Um, And so I'm not saying to not act on fear. Um, It is useful to recognize, it can be very useful to recognize, there are times when fear arises. It seems rampant in our society these days that, um, you know, that, that our our, you know, kind of the, the brain of fear has not really evolved to meet the culture <laughs> that we live in. And so there's often um, fear that we experience that is not really grounded in an actual physical or mental danger to our system. It's about some idea that we have that something might happen, some, some like projection or some kind of... Um, construction of our mind that we're reacting to and so the you know like for instance the you know the spider the fear of the spider you know the the notion of okay that spider could bite me and I could could you know die from a spider bite or something well that that can be a legitimate fear if it's a black widow or a brown recluse spider but largely the spiders in our homes are not poisonous and actually many of them can't even bite us and so you know the, the kind of fear that we have is actually not representative of reality and so this is an important thing to recognize that often our reactions are not grounded in something that's actually happening often our reactions are coming from something our minds have made up and so this is another important area to uh, to explore and get to to know. It's like, well, what is the mind actually reacting to? Is it reacting to the imminent na- danger of a spider bite? Just to keep going with the spider analogy, is it reacting to the imminent danger of a spider bite? No, that spider's all the way across the room. It's reacting to some idea about spiders, some memories, some kind of whole conglomeration of spiders and not liking them. And so to, to recognize where is the reactivity actually coming from. And so this, this pause that we can take around these particular ethical actions can help us to begin to look at what is actually going on in, in our minds. Is this something that is a reaction that's not necessarily related to what's actually going on, but more of a construction of the mind. So seeing this this experience, mindful of the uh, human experience of reactive emotions, we learn a lot. We see a lot of how our minds are kind of constructing its, its own suffering actually and as the mind begins to see that as the mind begins to see that it's actually creating its own misery and largely this is the case there are times of course when fear is very uh, um, legitimate I had a a situation at one point Um, I was at Spirit Rock and it's dusk time and I, it, it kind of hard to see and I saw a crack in the sidewalk and I took a step towards the crack 
you know, and uh, the crack coiled up into a, a rattlesnake, a baby rattlesnake, actually. Um, so I heard the hiss, I heard the rattle, and pff, there was fear. And instantly the, the, the system stopped. And yet this kind of fear, which was a present moment danger, you know, actually baby rattlesnakes are really dangerous. <laughs> um, you know, it's like it brought me right into the present moment. It, I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like thinking about my fear of the rattlesnake. It was like my whole system responded and very slowly kind of moved backwards. I was just kind of watching my system do this. And so the, you know, there can be situations where certain kinds of what we think of as reaction can just bring us more right into the present moment. But very often and way more often than we might think the vast majority of the ways that we suffer and how we feel, uh, you know, how the feeling of suffering is because our minds are um, relating to things in a way that's not necessary. And so in that case, you know, of, of the, the, the rattlesnake and stepping back, there was fear there, but there wasn't a kind of a, a thrashing around of the mind. It was much more of a, it was a very present kind of experience. So the, the mind that thrashes around, the mind that is trying to control and to fix and to change, this can be seen. And when we see it, again, the mind begins to understand its own participation in our misery. And seeing that, the mind begins to kind of rework itself because our system, our organism doesn't want to be miserable. Our organism wants to have some well-being to move in the direction of happiness. And so as we um, notice, as we with mindfulness recognize these movements towards greed, aversion, delusion, as we recognize that, our system begins to understand those motivations, those um, qualities of heart and mind are not serving this being to move towards well-being. Our system begins to figure out how to let them go. Our rational mind can't really figure out how to let them go. And so this is part of the power of this wise mindfulness, that it creates the conditions for our organism to get new information, to get actual information about what's happening in the present moment and how suffering is being created by our own minds. And the mind begins to recognize, yeah, mm, that's not so helpful. And so it starts to reshape itself in a new direction. And so, uh, you know, I think of these ethical guidelines as um, uh, things that help us in relationship to um, recognize when we're stepping into these unskillful areas. Not just the unskillfulness of action, but the unskillfulness of mind. And to be curious about that, to, uh, to investigate it, to see if you can hold it with some uh, curiosity and trust. It, it takes some time to trust this, but at the same time, um, to trust that the patience of meeting 
our reactive minds with mindfulness has a transformative power. And yet, it can take some some time for the transformation to happen, but we do get these little kind of hits or moments where we see the value of that. And so that can help us to continue to kind of move in this direction of having the patience to look at our experience as human experience. So um, I have more to say about ethics, but I want to leave a little bit of time for any comments or conversation or questions. So, um, And we've got weeks to talk about this, so <laughs> but any comments or questions? Yeah, and would you use the mic? Would somebody pass the mic back? Thank you. So we grow up with the sense of morality and there's a certain barometer. I mean, as we grow and learn, go to school, there's a certain way a perception of right from wrong. Yes. So how does it relate it to the Buddhist teaching of ethical uh, teaching? Yeah, so I you know it, it it can be there can be an overlap there. Um, because I think often, you know, as I said, most cultures have have some sense of certain um, actions or certain things being um, not helpful, like uh, most religions, refrain from killing, refrain from taking what's not given. And this is a very common, uh, so there can be a lot of overlap there. But I think one of the pieces can be, so for instance, um, we, we tend to perhaps at times think about um, um, ethics as related to laws or um, uh, you know, so there, there are ways in which, as human beings, perhaps in certain conditions, in certain cultures, certain agreements are made, this is how we behave together. And those are also often included in the realm of morality. Um, uh, and that, th- those kinds of things about the ways we behave together, some of those can be connected to the conditions of... I don't know where the culture is. You know, I, I was in the Peace Corps in the South Pacific and there were certain kinds of uh, ways of engaging that were connected somehow or in part to, you know, the, um, the, the nature of the land and the nature of, you know, so like not wearing your shoes inside. You know, this was a part of the, the culture. I don't know if it would, would go so far as to say that that was morality, but, but there are guidelines and rules of conduct, kind of. Um, and, and so all cultures will have their rules of conduct, their kind of guidelines, and there can be some overlap between those, those guidelines and rules of conduct and these um, more uh, human... Uh, guidelines or more human understanding around these things when done will create harm, will create suffering. And so the, the, um, the, the, 
ethics that we're talking about here is just that kind of place. It, it, in some ways, it's narrow. It's narrower than, than laws. Although, you know, it's also possible that certain laws might not... Um, you know, there, there wouldn't necessarily be an overlap between... Um, you know, there wouldn't necessarily be... Certain laws could be not... Um, in line with these ethical guidelines. It's possible that some culture has um, created laws that are, are harming. I'm, Nazi Germany had laws that were harming for the Jewish people. And so, you know, that, that's, that's another, another uh, you know, area of... Of, of checking, you know, it's like so the Buddha points to these kind of this distillation as being those, those, those things that will not only harm others, but will harm yourself. So the, uh, there's a, there is an overlap, but I think what, we, what, what the Buddha is asking us to do here is to look at those more foundational ethical principles. And it gives us some perhaps measure of... Um, um, maybe movement to oppose certain unjust ineth- you know unjust laws laws that might be unethical and so the, i think you know the buddha is asking us to kind of look at this this area around harm and um, to refrain from things that will actually create this kind of harm you know again and culturally we might have things that feel like they create harm that are more about habit, and so uh, so it's 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 delicate in some ways. You know, it's it's kind of it's it's not necessarily so cut and dried at times. What might be cultural and what might be more human ethics? So, for instance, in certain cultures, it may be that. Um, the 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 culture would be to maintain physical contact in a conversation and that um is what you grow up with that's what makes you feel comfortable and then it, um somebody else comes into that culture where that's not part of the culture and somebody grabs your hand while you're having a conversation there's discomfort feels like there's affliction but it's you know again it's 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 uh so it might feel like oh they shouldn't be doing that because it creates affliction but that particular form of affliction isn't about you know taking what's not given it's not about um, killing so i think this is part of the reason for some of these very clear guidelines helps us to kind of navigate that um, the the view around how you are in conversation with a stranger, for instance, that's created culturally. And so we each bring our own cultural conditioning to our interactions and certain ways of interaction will feel, will feel comfortable and certain ways won't feel comfortable. But that's view that is kind of shaping that feeling of comfort or discomfort rather than more of the human um, uh, the human kind of pain and suffering.
So yeah, it's, it's not a simple response, as you see. But, but I think there is an overlap, but there's also, there's also um, you know, ways in which some, sometimes the morality or um, the morality of a culture may also be running counter to this more natural ethics. And so I think we have to take care with that. Um, yeah, thank you for the question. Yeah. There's a little bit more time. If there's another question. Yeah. And um yeah. Um you talk about that there's something there's I'll use fear as the example. There's a real thing to be afraid of, like the rattlesnake. Um many times, even if we know it's in our mind, it can be huge. Um and if you, what would you suggest as a way to maybe parse it so you can step back when you can't fully step back? Yeah. If it's such a big, it feels very real. You Mentally you can say, I know that I don't have to be, if there's not imminent danger. Yes. Um, but it's actually, But the conditioning is very strong. The conditioning is so strong and sometimes it's physical. Yes. And you, and you have a reaction. It's actually too much... I'll, I'll say too much to bear. Yes. Um, how can you chip away at that to... So a couple pieces. One, um, and I'll do this really quickly because um, uh, I only have a couple minutes here, but um, the first piece is, so the, the exploration is recognizing, letting yourself know, yes, there isn't anything actually to fear. And yet, again, it's not about repressing the fear. It's not about trying to not feel the fear. That's like a hopeless case anyway. Um, but it's also, it's kind of like respecting the fear. It's like this has been deeply conditioned. And in some ways we can appreciate it. It's, it, it can be something that saved us in our earlier life. It might have been created out of an actual real situation that we needed to get away from. And so sometimes an appreciation for the, the fear of like, yes, I see you and I, I thank you for helping me throughout my life. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of acknowledging its place in your conditioning. It's an acknowledging its place. Sometimes that can give it a little bit of space that lets you step back and be able to hold it a little bit. Um, and sometimes it's strong enough that It can take time for the mindfulness to strengthen to the capacity. It's like sometimes our conditioning is really strong and our mindfulness isn't quite as strong as the conditioning. And and it feels like we get overwhelmed or swamped. And if that's happening, then that is not the time to try to be mindful of it. And so finding some ways to ground, you can acknowledge, yes, I don't need to be afraid of this right now. And what I need to do is to take my attention out of the thing that I and being that, that take my attention away from the situation or out of that situation so, because the, the, the attention to the situation is kind of looping us back into the fear. And so consciously turning your attention to something else, taking yourself out of that situation so that you can uh, let your system come to some, some kind of normalization and, um, um, you know, really just uh, give yourself a break from that so that it's not always called for, depending on how strong the mindfulness is, to try to be mindful of it. 
so it, it takes some it takes some time some learning to to navigate that there may there may be times sometimes where we can say oh yep i see there's nothing to be afraid of and thank you for supporting me for my life and there's a little bit of it like oh thank you for recognizing me and a little bit of a of a space or a relaxation it's like okay i can hang out with this for a little while and then maybe step aside from it so it's kind of like navigating that when is it getting overwhelming and finding 